Good morning. It's good to be here today together in the house of the Lord to worship him, to sing his praises, and also to hear from him and hear from his word. He has given us uh, the final revelation of his holy word, which is inspired and without error. And we would do well as those who have been born again to pay close attention to it. And we will continue our pilgrimage through this study in the life of Joseph, um, calling it a pilgrimage because that's the theme of today's sermon. We actually see Jacob making a pilgrimage to Egypt, and so we'll consider that as well. Yeah, and it's amazing that he's 130 years old when he takes this journey. Now, think of Jacob, uh, Israel, as he's beginning to be called because uh, the nation being called Israel I mean, he was a stranger. He's wandering around from place to place all of his life. But why would he do that? Because he believed the promises to Abraham that I will make you a great nation. You will inherit the land. But it's amazing that these patriarchs did not see that in their day and in their time. In fact, at the end of the great heroes of faith in Hebrews 11, of which we're all familiar, you get to the very end and it says in 11.39, all of these having gained approval through their faith did not receive what was promised. Now, did not receive what? In this life, right? What was promised, the greater promises. And we too are like Jacob. Many of us move around. We have We've had probably dozens and dozens of military folk in the life of this church. They're here for one year, two years, three years. Then they're moved on. People come in for tech jobs and so forth. Some of you have emigrated to the U.S. We are often on the move, moving around in these types of things. And that's a reminder that we don't ever want to make this home to get too comfortable, that this world is our home We have a a home that awaits us in heaven. In fact, those of us who are born again are citizens of heaven, and that's the home. That's That's the one where we'll really put down roots, amen? You'll really put down roots when you get to heaven. And and some of us in this life, oh, we want to move, we're building the dream house. And maybe that might only be for 10 years or 20 years or whatever, but it's still a bleep on the screen in the realm of eternity, Hebrews 13, 14, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And for those of us who are truly born again, we can say that. We can be comfortable. We enjoy God's blessings in this life, the good things that he has given us, raising a godly seed, seeking to be faithful in a a lost and dying world. But at the end of the day, this world is not our home. You should not feel too comfortable in this world. Puts truth to the immortal pilgrim's progress, which depicts this beautifully, which one of our community groups is is studying even right now. Or the old uh, southern hymn, this world's not my home, I'm just a passing through, you know? And so that's a good reminder as well. Our great God, brethren, keeps his promises. He keeps his promises to his covenant people just as he kept his promise to Abraham and the other patriarchs. And we see today uh, that we see the family, the, the, uh, the clan, as it were, move from famine to fortune. And we'll see that unfolded in our text. So turn with me, please, to Genesis 45. Genesis 45. Our actual text goes from verse 16 all the way to the end of what Casey read, 4627. 
I'll reread parts of the genealogy when we get to it, but I'm going to read now verse 16 of chapter 45 through 46, 7. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beast, go to the land of Canaan, take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments." To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and bread, and subsistence for his father on the journey. Verse 24, so he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. Then they went up from Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive. Indeed, he is ruler over the land of Egypt. But he was stunned, for he did not believe them. And when they told him all the words of Joseph, how how he had spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. And he said, I am the God. I am God. I am the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they came to Egypt, and Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the rich privilege that we have to gather together on your day, on the Lord's day, to come to hear from you. We pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to remove distractions and cares that might be flying around in our minds, that we could move those off to the side, that we could learn of you, 
Lord, help us to examine our hearts and our motives even this day as we come to worship. Have we come with self-righteousness? Have we come with unconfessed sin? Have we come dressed in our finest clothes and yet our hearts can be cold? Have we come to celebrate our spiritual victories in front of others while we do not admit the daily struggle that we have with sin? Lord, purify us of these things. Remind us of our heavenly home. Remind us to long for this place. And until then, that the Holy Spirit would continue to conform us into the image of Christ, making us more and more like him in preparation for that great day. So Lord, we beg, pour out your spirit upon this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you'll remember back in chapter 43 and 44, Joseph gave a series of tests. There's several trips to get food uh, with the brothers, you know, hearing that there's food in Egypt and the famine. And Joseph knows it's his brothers and gives several tests, right? And after these tests in chapter 44, the, the test of the silver cup, chapter, uh, later in chapter 44, Judah in his speech uh, declaring that he's truly a transformed man as he declares that he will even stand in in the place of Benjamin to be a a substitute, Joseph is now assured of their repentance. It's genuine. Genuine repentance is a beautiful thing when one truly turns. And it took how many years for these brothers? Living in their sin, living living in dirty secrets. That, That sin word, Egypt, every time they heard of Egypt, that's where we sold our brother. And our dad still doesn't know. And he goes around moping and long-faced and, and in melancholy all of these years. And we did that to our father. It went around like that for years and years. And Joseph uses incredible tact, incredible wisdom to unfold if they've truly changed. Are they truly repentant? Has God indeed done a change in their heart? And he exercises much wisdom in that. And that's where chapter 45 began last time. Judah had just given this glorious speech. And and look at 45.1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, have everyone go out for me. Why? Well, think of all the Egyptian court, all the officials that would be nearby with Joseph, second in command of the land. And here are the brothers, and there are, there's about to be this complete reconciliation that would take place. He has everyone go out. One, that this is a private family matter. It's not for everyone else to, to hear. He's not going to humiliate him. Remember, we talked about all the things Joseph could have done. Aha, let me put you in where I was. And all of that, he doesn't do that. He sends everyone out, but also for their protection. Because had that come out that these brothers had treated Joseph in that way, all of the royal court would, be, would look at the brothers as enemies and perhaps want to take their life. They had become very loyal to Joseph. After they're all out, what happens? Weeping. And he's not just, it's not like a tear, you know, sometimes and something brings a tear to your eye. It's not that. This is a wailing, a deep weeping, a wailing that could be heard not only outside of the door, but throughout the whole court. And then it goes through the Egyptian grapevine, and suddenly it reaches all the way down to Pharaoh's house. Joseph's in there wailing. 
His brothers are filled with fear. And what does he say? Look in verse 3. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? Remember, he's asked that several times in the dialogue when they didn't, they still don't know who he is. And so he knew that superficially, oh yeah, dad's down there and everything. But, but now it's like, this is a family thing. How's dad really doing? How's he been? And then they still are in dismay. In fact, that word dismay, remember, is going out onto the battlefield like a green marine, never out there before. It's total fear. That's what these brothers are going through. And then in verse 4, Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. You know what would be the natural thing to do as a hairy Hebrew? Is go backwards. <laughs> we know you Egyptians don't like us. But he says, come closer to me. And he goes, I am Joseph a second time. And then he says those key words, whom you sold into Egypt. If they were fearful and dismayed before, I mean, you'd have to wonder if the knees were clicking or what. This is terrifying for them. And then he reassures them, you know, uh, basically God sent me. He he repeats that three times. You sold me, but it was God that sent me to preserve a remnant. And so it goes through all of that. And there's this beautiful scene of reconciliation. We learned that embracing God's perfect providence really makes us free, no matter how difficult the things are that we're going through, because it enables us to freely forgive those who had hurt us. And that's exactly what Joseph did. Freely and without cost. Another type of Christ. Again, we need to remember that God has forgiven us of so much. Matthew 18, we looked at that. We've sinned against God far more than anyone could ever sin against us. We've sinned against the greater. And and so we need to keep the cross in our eyes, in our mind's eye, as it were, to keep the cross there. Because why? It takes the fire extinguisher upon the hot coals of anger and bitterness that whelm up within us. The cross puts out those flames and enables us to freely forgive Joseph was affecting reconciliation because he saw his brother's confession. He had heard it back in 43, them not knowing that he could understand Hebrew, right? And, and, and they're there and they're saying, oh, I knew this would come. You know, we sold Joseph. That's a paraphrase. Um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, in here, there's true brokenness. And this beautiful scene right before our text words, verse 14 then he fell on his brother's, brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck, more weeping, and then finally he kissed all of his brothers and wept on them, one by one, probably in order of age, with words of reconciliation and affirmation. And then at the end of verse 15, remember we noted this, and afterwards his brother, brothers talked with him. Maybe for the first time. Back in 37, it said they were so jealous and angry of him that they could not even say shalom. They could not say anything. And so that's all the context of where we're at now as we pick it up here in verse 16, looking at this theme of, of deliverance and, and, and God's sovereign provision even in the midst of our famine. The famine to fortune story is, is seen clearly here. I'm borrowing that title from Ian Duguid, by the way. Um, I, th- I think it fits perfectly. But that's true of each one of us with the gospel. We're, we're completely bankrupt, right? We, we, we've got nothing to offer a holy God in our sin. 
But he comes and he sees that we are poor. And just as it says, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who hunger now. You shall be satisfied. He sees us in our hunger, in our starvation, in our lacking of righteousness. And he comes and he makes us alive and imputes his perfect righteousness to us and grants forgiveness. So we'll look at this under three simple heads, uh, broken down really in the sections that I've read them. Um, the rest of 45, the first seven verses of 46, we see the migration, and then, then we'll end with the genealogy. So first of all, we see provisions um, being supplied as Pharaoh really commands, gives a series of commands um, in the opening, in the first half of the last part of this chapter, along with sprinkled in with promises along the way. The news had spread. And Pharaoh wants to demonstrate his gratitude to Joseph's family. Gratitude, why? Why is he so interested in Joseph's family? Joseph, more or less, was an earthly savior, right, for Egypt. Where would Egypt be if it was not for his wisdom of interpreting Pharaoh's dreams, of knowing there'd be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine? They'd be just like the rest of the world. And in fact, there's a couple times where Joseph, actually earlier in 45, where he says, for the preservation of the world, for the preservation of mankind. So he was chosen to be a vessel for that. You guys may have sold me, but God had much bigger plans. And so what does he do? He promises the best of the land, the the fat of the land. Maybe as I was reading that, you, you noticed some of the words he's commanding. Load this, take that, go down, come back. He's, he's just calling the shots, providing the, the best of the wagons, as it were. And Joseph also is generous. He gives of the 20 donkeys, right? The 10 male, and the 10 female donkeys, which is an irony because back in 43, 18, as the brothers are coming to, to get food, um, they're like, well, what if, they, what if the Egyptians steal our donkeys? Well, here they're being blessed with 20 extra donkeys. There's plentiful, plentiful provisions that are being provided. Verse 21, so the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. He gives them these wagons, and then it says the, the changes of garments and the 300 pieces of silver. And notice the 300 pieces of silver go who? To who? Benjamin, right? Ian Duguid points out he received 22 years of deferred birthday money. So all that birthday money, that, that he hasn't been around for 22 years. Boom, here it is. And he gives, well, he gives the brother, the brothers a, a suit, a new garment. And it's interesting because it comes full circle. 22 years before, it was his clothes that instigated the jealousy and the bitterness to want to betray Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. Now, these garments, there's, the idea is that they're festive garments. They're, they're, they're new suits, they're clothing, they're, they're outer garments uh, intended to be symbols of reconciliation symbols that the family is now restored and there's an irony even there because it was joseph's clothing back in 37 that was central to his rejection and now it's the clothing that's a reminder of their reconciliation of coming back together now we've talked about this before but the physical garments and joseph there's several markers right remember in the very beginning of the story um, you know, in verse 3, it says the brothers are jealous of this multicolored tunic that his father had given him. 
And then later, by the end of that chapter, he's sold into slavery. They're dipping that in the blood so they can deceive the deceiver, Jacob, their father, um, and, and, you know, to take it to him. Examine this. Is this your sons? You know, they don't say, oh, he's dead. They let him come to that conclusion. But then also, remember the woman that tried to seduce him? And here, he, you know, here she comes. She finally throws herself on him. And what does he do? Leaves his garment. I'm about to leave my garment behind. It's getting warm up here. Um, <laughs> uh, leaves his garment and he flees, right? Then he's in prison for two years. No doubt ratty prison type clothes, even though he's in charge of the prison. But what happens when Pharaoh has the dream? They have to Egyptianize him. So he gets more clothes so to make him look like an Egyptian and freshly shaved. And now here you see garments again. Garments symbolizing their reconciliation what about us? There's a garment that helps us to be reconciled, not to one another. I give my wife a garment so we can reconcile a conflict, but, but before God, right? The spiritual garments of his perfect righteousness, these garments of salvation, as, as Isaiah calls it, our sin exposes us naked before a holy God, and we need the robe of his righteousness, as it says in Romans 5.15, For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of His grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, will abound to many. Now, verse 24, there's a bit of, I, I think this is funny in a way here. So he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, so, so you can picture the wagons are starting to go, you know, and then Joseph, you know, how you like, don't forget to write, or whatever, you know, like if it's a mom to a child. But what does he say to them? As they were departing, do not quarrel on the journey. Now, again, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that phrase there. By the way, the word could mean to quake in the Hebrew, to be excited, to be perturbed, or to even be in a rage, or to be angry. But he's saying here, do not quarrel. In other words, this, I know it's a long journey, you're going to be on the road for a couple of weeks. There's going to be opportunity for a lot of talk, a lot of reflection. Don't blame shift. Don't, don't, don't start blaming each other who's really at fault and all that. Don't go back there. Move forward. You can almost hear it. You were the one that argued for him to be thrown in the pit. No, but it was you were the one that thought to sell him to the caravan. Well, you were the one that said you'd come back and get, you know, you can almost picture the, the bickering that could take place. And so he tells him, do not quarrel on the journey. Do not quarrel. Revel in the goodness of God and the fortune that you have come into. Reflect on that. Reflect that we've been reunited as a family and as all 12 brothers for the first time in 22 years. Rejoice in those things. We too can fall into that um, sinful pride of self-justification, which the brothers may have been tempted to. Joseph thought they would be tempted to, so he gives them the exhortation. And how many Christians need this exhortation today that are tempted to, be, to quarrel quickly? Certain situations may arise, and, and we need to put that to death. Well, verses 25 to 28, Jacob is revived as he has told the news about Joseph. Verse 25, the brothers travel they're traveling up north, up the Nile, through Mount Sinai, up to the land of Canaan. And in verse 26, they say, Joseph 
is still alive, and indeed he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now that's, that's phenomenal, phenomenal. And then it says, but he was stunned, for he did not believe them. That literally means his heart became numb. He, he was, you know, uh, could not believe it. He was stunned. He was wearied by it. One commentator said this, his son's lies with which they had hidden their guilt had rightly poisoned his trust in them, thinking what self-serving cruelty were his sons perpetuating now, he wondered. And so literally it says, (coughs) here comes the brothers again, and they're just, they've been playing me like a fiddle for 22 years. And what are they coming up with now? What, you know, and remember, he's just said he's, he's going to be depressed until he goes to the grave. And, and this is a discouraged old man, 130 years old. But in verse 27, he says, But when they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to them. Now, it's all those sweet words of reconciliation. Uh, God's purposes behind them as the covenant nation. They, you know, Jacob should be interested in, in what God's been doing behind the scenes. But more than that, remember Simeon's now out of prison and he's there and Benjamin's there intact, right? He, he, remember his greatest fear was something's going to happen to Benjamin. Something's already happened to Joseph. And Benjamin's enthused and excited. Yes, it's Joseph. And I think those things contributed to his heart beginning to become revived. And then he walked over to the picture window of the Hebrew household and looked out and he saw a whole line of black SUVs, brand new shiny tinted windows. I mean, the whole, I mean, the the caravan, like the CIA has come. I mean, and it's like, okay, I know we don't have that kind of money. (laughs) Like what is going on? So, So the testimony of the brothers in light of the wealth that had been delivered, I think contributed to the fact of him beginning to think, this could be true. The spirit of their father began to revive, began to reignite. It's a beautiful scene. In a sense, news of Joseph's resurrection revived Jacob and his own sort of resurrection, as it were. The smile had returned to his face. The twinkle in his eye had returned. Listen to ancient commentator Christendom. He says this about this exact scene. Just as the light of a lamp, when the supply of oil runs out and the light is on the point of going out and someone emits a brighter flame when someone puts a little oil into it. And just the same way, this old man on the point of expiring from disappointment next learned that Joseph was alive and was in charge of all of Egypt from being old Jacob became young, and he put aside the cloud of disappointment, and he repelled the storm in his mind, then found himself at peace. And you almost just have to picture, after he's revived, and he's reflecting, and he's thinking, Joseph, yeah, Joseph, I thought he's been dead for 22 years. What do I remember last about Joseph? Those dreams when he was 17, right before I sent him out to go to Dotham to find his brothers, to check on the shalom of his brothers. What do I remember? Those dreams. And you have to remember, did he remember that second dream? Do you remember what it was in 37 verse 10? Shall, and he says this, this was his response to the dream. Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves down on the ground before you? 
He probably reflected on that. He was angry about it then, but he probably rejoiced now. It's true. He's the ruler of all of Egypt, and this is unfolding. It's a glorious picture. All those years of mopiness now being spiritually revived. And he says in verse 28, it is enough. My son is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So a beautiful scene. We move on now to this migration to Egypt. Well, we see here in verse 1, so Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba to offer sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Now, that's interesting. Usually it's the God of Abraham and Isaac and so forth, but here it's phrased, the God of his father, Isaac. Jacob, apparently living near Hebron, near the family tomb, had set out on this long journey, a couple hundred miles, 250 miles or so, and the first stop would be 25 miles in, so right at the very beginning. And this place of Beersheba, which has a rich patriarchal history about it, is is the first stop. And he comes to worship. He comes to commune with his God. That's what he comes to do. Offering sacrifices on the altar signified communion between God and the person who is worshiping. And he's coming with that heart and with that intent. And we hear God spoke to Israel in visions and said, Jacob, Jacob. He says, here am I. It's a reminder that God knows him personally, that God is with him, that God is speaking to him. Now, Abraham was the first to actually name the place Beersheba back in chapter 21 after making that covenant with Abimelech. Um, it says that he named the place Beersheba. In fact, uh, Genesis 21, 31. Therefore, he called the, the place Beersheba because the two of them took an oath and they made a covenant at Beersheba and Abimelech. And Abraham planted a tree, a tamarisk tree at Beersheba. A couple chapters later, Isaac is there. Now Isaac, it's interesting, Isaac is told, do not leave the land, do not go to Egypt. Abraham went to Egypt, he wasn't told to. Um, Isaac's told not to, and Jacob's told to actually go, as we're seeing here. But in Isaac, it says, 26.3, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you for you and your descendants. I will give you these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Jacob himself knew this land, Because back in 28, as a young man, he had visited Beersheba as well. Well, reading verses 3 and 4, the promise that God gives, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down into Egypt. And I will make you a great nation, and I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. What we have here is a theophany, right? What's a theophany? One dictionary calls it's a theological term that refers to either a visible or an auditory manifestation of God. And you can probably think of many of these, right? The beginning of Exodus, there's one, right? The burning bush, right? Mount Sinai, thunder and lightning and the earthquakes and so forth. Auditory manifestations happen throughout Exodus, but as well, all the way back in the garden, even at Jesus' baptism, you have the voice coming from heaven. And so those, so it's a theophany that's happening here. And common attributes are typically this. Yahweh comes on the scene, identifies himself, um, 
oftentimes quelling human fear, do not be afraid, and then an assurance that I will be with you. That's a common theme throughout those if you study them out. God's presence does not mean there won't be pain, but it does mean that his protection and his provision will be there. Now, keep in mind, this is, how often does God speak? You know, we go catty corner over to that, you know, many churches around here say, God speaks to you, you just got to listen, got to go down to the waves, you got to clear out your head, and God told me, really? Okay. And, and, you know, people will tell you, but, but God doesn't speak like that. He's given us his completed word. The canon is closed. But even in Old Testament times, sometimes we can think, oh yeah, the, the word's not, the, the canon's not closed, and so God's just speaking all the time. When, when does God speak again after this scene? Just 400 years later. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's long periods of silence that take place. It's common after Malachi, right? All the way till the coming of Christ, you know, 400 plus years. It, it, it's, it's more, it, these are more even supernatural and unusual when they happen. It's not as though they happen all the time. Now, this whole scene is doing something. It's reaffirming the promise that was given to Abraham. It's reaffirming that. And Jacob has no reason to fear. Why? Because he's promised once again that just as Abraham was promised, you will become a great nation. He's told that God would be with him. He's told that you won't remain there. I will bring you up again. He doesn't say it's going to be 430 years, but, um, you know, but, but that the nation would come back to the promised land And then lastly, and probably most comforting of all to him, on a personal note, would be that Joseph would be with him when he dies. That Joseph will close your eyes. It was very common actually for the oldest to do this when there was a death in the family and people are gathered around, um, that the oldest would come and close the eyes gently after a person passes away, but he is told that Joseph would be the one. There's a comfort in that, having family around, isn't there? When you're on your deathbed, I mean, Archibald Alexander has a whole book of all these deathbed experiences and stuff. It's fascinating to read that. I've seen enough also, um, you know, near death and families and, and, you know, people that are near death and that kind of thing also, that, that it brings incredible comfort to both the remaining family and especially to the one dying that the family is nearby. And so he has this comfort. Well, the next morning they, they journey on to Egypt. Perhaps Jacob is looking at this as one commentator brought out that going into Egypt was like going into the ark. It's a place of preservation where we will be protected from the storms, from the famine. And they journey down into Egypt. By faith, everything and everyone, everything that he owned, everyone in the, in the whole clan were transported to Egypt. By faith, he would entrust this drought-stricken family to Egypt. Luther says, faith is a living, restless thing. It cannot be inoperative. And so, by faith, he obeys what the Lord has said and goes. And we know this is remarkable as they enter Egypt, that it will be exactly 430 years until Israel comes out of the land of Egypt. We know that from Exodus 12, 40. If you want to write that down, it says, now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the hosts of the Lord 
went out from the land of Egypt. So this was exactly to the exact day that they entered 430 years later, they would leave. Think of it for Jacob. You know, he's been brought up well, Isaac and all that. This is the land that's been promised to my grandfather Abraham and all of that. And now suddenly he's saying, pack it all up and go to a, a, a pagan nation. I mean, that, that takes a lot of faith. You have to wonder if he thought, like, is this the right thing to do? And all of that, of course, he had the affirmation from the Lord and, and that theophany. But we too can feel like, am I going in the right direction? I'm third year college, I've been pursuing this major, maybe I need to shift. Or a relationship, you know, you've been pursuing and courting somebody for a couple of years and the Lord's making it clear, that's not the one and there needs to be a shift. Sometimes we can feel a lack of direction or question, are we in the wrong direction? But we need to cling to the promises of God and walk by faith and not by sight. Use the wisdom of the word of God, the wisdom of counselors in making such decisions. Christ himself revives the faith of faltering saints. When we are discouraged and depressed in our circumstances or even our own sin, Uh, that weigh us down. We need the gospel to revive us. Well, finally, and and very quickly, let's look at this genealogy. We've seen the trip to Canaan and then the migration back into Egypt. It's a migration that would last 430 years. (laughs) Um, And then, uh, so let's consider this uh, genealogy. I'm not going to read the whole thing for us again. Um, By the way, back in chapter 37 and verse 2, you might remember, we pointed this out, our Bibles don't have a heading, and now is the life of Joseph, right? It actually says, and there, it says, there are the records of the generation, these are the records of the generations of Jacob. The 11th time that phrase occurs in Genesis, which typically gives the whole history of that family. And so here, now the records of the generations of Jacob. And then before the verse is over, Joseph was 17 years old and that we've just been hearing all about Joseph. And now we're back to Jacob because that's what this is, the, gen- the, the um, records of Jacob. And so that's what the writer with the narrator, what Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is doing is he's laying this out for us. Really, the promise of verse 3 is already in fulfillment in, in verse 8, that, or in verse 7 and 8, and that, that the promise that, that you will go down, I will be with you, that they've, they've arrived. Now, this is listed a little differently than other genealogies. This is in order of the wives, not in order of age of the children, as most genealogies would be. Um, the bookends are at the beginning and the end, verse 8 and 27, those who came down to Egypt, those who came to Egypt. So it's bookended very neatly in that way. Working backwards, we see that the total that came was 70. Um, but there are some discrepancies of which we'll touch on in just a moment. Now, 70 is an important number. number. It's a multiple of two a perfect numbers, 7 and 10. Judah, the sons of Perez, re- replaced the two that had died, making the divine number seven. And Benjamin, perhaps, is only 31 years old, and he's said to have 10 sons. So the other genealogies in Exodus and in Numbers are probably backwritten in to this. But let's just a couple of exegetical thoughts. Leah and Rachel were the two primary. If you remember the story of Jacob, he goes there, he loves Rachel, right? Laban tricks him. 
Nope, you get, you get Leah. Seven more years, he's in the, seven, the, the next seven years just pass so quickly for him. And, um, and then he gets Rachel, so the one that he really loved. And so there's two wives, but the wives get impatient and give their uh, concubines to him. And so he's essentially got four wives that produce children for him. Now, both Leah and Rachel bear twice as many descendants as their maids do. Leah has 33, but Zilpah has 16. Rachel has 14. Her maid only has seven. So you add those numbers up, 33, 16, 14, and 7, you get 70 really neatly. But however, look in verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of the sons, were 66 persons in all. So is it 66 or is it 70? And you add, well, there's more confusion when you add the, the list that's in Exodus 1 because it excludes Jacob. And so the, the, you can wrestle with this many different ways, as I did. Um, two of Judah's sons had died in Canaan. Joseph and his sons are already in Egypt, but then you end up with 65. How do you get to 66? You add in Dinah. But anyway, one commentator, Sarna, I think sums this up beautifully and, and um, this hopefully will satisfy you. There is no way to satisfactory, satisfactorily solving the problem and reconciling the differences unless 70 is understood here to be a typological rather than a literal number. It is here used as elsewhere in biblical literature to express the idea of totality. And I think that's what it's expressing. We know that this, it is roughly 70, it's, you know, however you slice and dice, but um, we know that that 70 will grow to be what? Remember the book of Numbers? 600,000 men, not counting women and children. Probably over 2 million the nation would grow to be <clears throat> in this time. Why? As we'll see, they're in the land of Goshen, the, the most fertile, productive area of the Nile River. And they're left alone for many of those years. Well, let's draw a couple concluding applications do you have a pilgrimage mentality? Are you just a little too comfortable? You're lazy boy, you're easy boy, whatever kind of whatever you call those chairs. You know, it just it's really comfortable, and you've got your house. Maybe your house is paid off. Maybe you're settled. Maybe you uh, have great plans for retirement. We need to be reminded that we too, if you're a child of God, you are on pilgrimage. This life is but a vapor. We're on a pilgrimage, and God does not want us to become too comfortable in this life. Be reminded and remind yourself often of your true heavenly home. And with the Lord's Supper, we often do that because we, we, we look back to what He's done. We, we believe He's our high priest today, but we often look forward to that great day when we will be with Him. We'll no longer take the bread and the cup in that fashion where we will be with Him in paradise patriarchs were looking for that heavenly city are we looking for that that's not wrong to own a home it's not wrong to seek to raise a family in a safe place and all of that but but remembering to have the proper mindset to, to not get too comfortable in this world and and remember that when god has saved us he's what he set us apart He's sanctifying us he's growing us he has set us apart to himself and so we are not free to just become like the world and blend in with the world. 
Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. John, we looked at, going through that book some months back, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now let that, let that marinate for a little bit. Are you in love with the world? Have you gotten too comfortable with the things of this world? Some of you may need to make changes. Some of you may need to make radical changes with friendships and, and all of that. Now, this should be an easy reminder that we're pilgrims because the world despises us. Well, maybe not on a surfacey, you know, neighbor, high neighbor, oh, there's that Christian, you know. But go out and evangelism, the various places that we go, you'll see how the world despises light. Darkness hates light. And it comes out in the language and the attitude and the, the breathing of fire almost. The world despises us, and that's a, that's a reminder this world is not our home. We too have the promise, though, that Jacob was given as we're on pilgrimage, that God is with us. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us, whatever we're going through, wherever he takes us. He will guide us by his word and his spirit. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Now, just as Jacob's family gained all this favor from the eyes of Pharaoh because of Joseph's great blessing, and, and what, did, what did Jacob do? He doubted it at first, right? He didn't believe it. He's thinking, what, what, what are you up to here? So too, we find favor in the eyes of God because of Christ and what he's done for us. Paul beautifully sets us forth in Philippians 3, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We can doubt at the fullness and the goodness and the full and free forgiveness that we have in the gospel because of Christ, saying also, this is too good to be true. It is true. And it's wonderful news. And then we need to be reminded as this whole broader story is teaching us the theme of forgiveness and reconciliation and how reconciliation is so vital in our relationships it involves admitting sin and owning sin and repenting of sin and not holding grudges, being tender-hearted, being compassionate with the spirit of intimacy. Forgiveness is essential to our own peace in the Christian life. Do you struggle with forgiving others? How we need to study the broader Word of God, Matthew 18, we looked at last time. And then also to remember, we've been reconciled to God. Remember we read back in 2 Corinthians 5, we've been reconciled to God, and that's the great motivator to be reconciled to others. We're new creatures in Christ. Now all these things come from God who reconciled Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We are all ambassadors to Christ. It's not just missionaries and pastors. 
We are all ambassadors of Christ, that we are to stand in his stead and beg people to be reconciled to him. Now, maybe some of you are outside of Christ. God's provided a way for you to have the guilt and the power of your sin removed and taken out of the way. Look to the greater Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was the one that was dead and was buried and rose victoriously from the dead. He now rules as exalted Savior. He is on the throne. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You will do it freely or you will be forced to do it. You see, faith is not just a, some mental, uh, a, a mental ascent that, oh, I believe that Jesus, Jesus lived and that he died. He was a good teacher. It's, it's not that. It's running to him and clinging to him as your only hope of salvation. He lived the perfect life, the life that you can never live. He kept God's law perfectly. The Puritan Thomas Watson said, Faith is seated in the understanding as well as the will. It has an eye to see Christ and a wing to fly to Christ. And so it's not enough to have it up here, but a running to Christ to embrace him by faith. So come to Jesus, turning from your sin, and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this wonderful narrative that we've been considering for some 10 weeks, Lord. We do pray that you would use it in the life of our church, continue to use it. We know that you have in many ways already. Lord, we ask um, that you would remind us that we are but pilgrims in this land. In Jesus' name, amen.